Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Morning and welcome to Out of the Blue on Sunday, 25th of June, 2017. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, 8:55 on your AM dial, or you can have a listen from our website, www.3cr.org.au/radioblue, where you will also find a number of previously broadcast episodes that have been uploaded as podcasts. My name is Andrew Christie from Melbourne Polytechnic and Marine Care Point Cook, and today's weather partly cloudy with intermittent sunshine with a forecast top of about 13 degrees and some rain around also in the form of a few showers. Got to be said that the second half of this week's been a bit yuck, uh, certainly compared to the first half, where we got some glorious days that were more reminiscent of autumn almost than winter. You know, temperatures up around 15, 16 degrees, beautiful sunshine. Always keep a close eye on the weather. The Bureau of Meteorology's website's as good a place as any if you're planning on getting in or on our beautiful bay or in our waterways in the state of Victoria. I've often said on this show that this time of the year is always a fantastic time to get in the water for those of, the, uh, those of our listeners that can actually brave it. The reason being it's often the light northerly or westerly breezes that are blowing. You get some very calm conditions out there and what that often means is that the visibility is as good at this time of year as it is for any time of the year. I hopped, back, hopped into the water at Point Cook Marine Sanctuary actually back on Saturday 17th of June. Got to say, very, very fresh, very, very invigorating. The thing that I've always dreaded about getting into water that cold is the uh, what you'd call that ice cream headache, that headache you get straight across your forehead. It's absolutely excruciating at times. Uh, funnily enough, wasn't too bad this time. I'm not sure what was driving that. But uh, the other major problem, of course, is uh, a bit of shrinkage. Uh, for a while there, I thought I'd converted a female, a bit like the protandrous hermaphrodite barramundi that I'll be talking about a little bit later on in this show. The thing that really grabs me about Port Phillip Bay about this time of year is the amazing colours that are on display. You see some gorgeous sponges and nudie branks and all these sorts of things. I managed to, managed to stick it out for about 45 minutes in the water and that was with a 7mm dive suit so I was certainly feeling it this time round. Tends to be pretty quiet because uh, there aren't a huge number of fish around. A lot of them have migrated and the rays as well have uh, have moved around. Uh, hopefully they've sort of started to steer clear of Rye Pier a bit where we still have problems and uh, Project Banjo is the, uh, the mob that's trying to get on top of that which is great to see some big news during the week there with the uh the petition that they've got it's going great guns if you haven't checked it out already please jump on to uh onto google and punch in project banjo and see what comes up and latch onto that petition because it's well worth doing 
Anyway, today I want to spend a little bit more time speaking about the aquaculture industry in Victoria. Now, some of our listeners may remember that I started making mention of it back on the 28th of May, the last time I was on air on Out of the Blue. And some of our listeners might also remember that I attended the Food Service Australia 2017 Australian Seafood Summit, and that was held at the Royal Exhibition Buildings in Carlton, and uh, that was a fantastic event to be part of and was quite well attended. Anyway, more after this brief community service announcement. Help 3CR support the rights of Indigenous Australians. They mean to save our culture and save our dreams, our footprints, dreams, our songline, and keep our culture going strong. Of course, a lot of the Aboriginals, having been stolen, were put into state care, and also others... The recognition were... of what our people have been through in the last 200 years, the recognition of our culture in the last 40,000 years, and the recognition of where we are heading into the Welcome to uh, Survival Day, Invasion Day. 223 years ago, the white man landed on our shores. Subscribe to 3CR and help keep Indigenous voices on air. Call us on 94198377 or visit 3cr.org.au. Subscribe now. You are listening to Out of the Blue on 3CR Community Radio, 8.55 on your AM dial. Okay, I wanted to expand a little on what I was saying in my previous show on the aquaculture industry in Victoria, what it consists of, and where we may end up going uh, in the future. The Victorian aquaculture strategy for 2017, and goes all the way through, it's a five-year period, 2017 to 2022, has been released by the Minister for, uh, for Agriculture, Yala Pulford, and that was back in April. Now, for those of our listeners that are keen to track it down and get a bit of a feel for the aquaculture industry, it's well, uh, well and truly worthwhile doing. Uh, it's a grand total of only 15 pages, so it's not especially comprehensive as far as these things go, but it's only intended to function as something of a foundation and therefore offers much to build on. Sometimes these policy documents can be a bit long-winded and they can sometimes make great reading matter if you're uh, struggling with insomnia. Um, they're good for sending people to sleep from time to time, but uh, this uh, document I've got to say is an exception because it's partly because I think it's it's reasonably brief it cuts straight to the chase there's a lot of dot points in there where it really identifies some key areas of the Victorian aquaculture industry and what we're going to concentrate on for the future relatively very easy to read and easy to appreciate for the lay person and there's a lot to build on there so I'd certainly urge our listeners to track it down on the internet for those that are interested because it does provide quite a bit of background information for those that may not be fully familiar with the aquaculture industry. And that's part of what I wanted to do today, cover some of the issues that are uh, bubbling away in the aquaculture industry in the state of Victoria, just to give our listeners who may not be as familiar with it a bit of an idea of what it consists of. Now, one industry recently that's really come to the fore in Victoria has been barramundi, uh, Lati's calcarifer, for those that are interested in the scientific name side of things. Barramundi, until fairly recently, used to be done on a what you'd almost call a pilot scale or a you know pilot study scale. Very, very small scale farms that were around the place that were looking to culture barramundi in some way, shape, or form. But nowadays, it has become a really, really significant industry in the Victorian aquaculture landscape, uh, worth many millions of dollars a year. And a big reason for that in the state of Victoria is one particular enterprise called Mainstream Aquaculture in Werribee. Now, a lot of people, when I discuss mainstream with people, uh, mainstream aquaculture with people, they it really 
are quite surprised that there is a major barramundi farm in Werribee. And that's understandable. Uh, For one thing, mainstream don't advertise their presence a lot. They've got their board of directors. They're an extremely professional sort of an enterprise, and they supply... uh, fish to both domestic and international markets. So they're very, very focused on what they're doing. Um, It's got to be said they're not Melbourne Aquarium. They're not looking to bring people through the farm all the time and that sort of thing. Once upon a time, they had their main hatchery facilities located up in Townsville, which, of course, is a climate that we associate with being much more uh, sort of friendly to the Barramundi, uh, remembering that Barramundi really love temperatures of around 28 degrees, uh, if not warmer on occasion. They don't tend to be associated with the much cooler temperatures in metropolitan Melbourne. And fairly recently, we're only talking about two or three years, um, they mainstream made the executive decision to move the hatchery down to Melbourne and they've achieved some spectacular results there. Currently, they're producing about 100,000 barramundi for the market for their own purposes and for the market per month. And the thing that's uh, beneficial to to remember about barramundi is these fish are very well studied throughout the world. Um, If you move north, they're called the Asian sea bass uh, throughout, you know, Malaysia, Thailand, Singapore. That's the sort of uh, name they'll give to these fish. So they're quite a well-studied fish, and what you've got to remember with that in mind is the diets that are engineered to suit these fish are done so with the nutrient profile of the animals strongly in, in mind. The feed that you provide to the barramundi commercial diets are pretty damn good at getting good rapid growth for these sorts of fish. That's not the case with all Australian natives, and I want to touch on a few other examples a little bit later on in the show. The other thing to remember too is that the hatchery technology for barramundi is very, very well developed. We've got a good strong understanding of the size at maturity for barramundi, how long it takes them to produce their larvae and eggs and all those sorts of things. And, of course, mainstream use that to the utmost advantage. The really interesting thing, as I alluded to before in my introduction, was that barramundi are what we call protandrous hermaphrodites. Now, what that means is that for the first five or so years of their lives, the barramundi are all male. They're born with the the, the male genitalia that's uh, basically internal. They've got their testes and all that sort of thing. They're a spawning-type fish, so they don't uh, rely on internal fertilisation like we do or like sharks do, for example. But a really interesting thing happens at about six or seven years of age. The barramundi then end up actually switching sex. So they end up developing ovaries and effectively becoming female. So when you're looking at barramundi that are six or seven years old, as a general rule of thumb, uh, six or seven years old or older, uh, 100% of them will be females. Now, there are some techniques that you can use to retard that and make sure that you've got a supply of males, which mainstream and other enterprises do. They've got to make sure there's enough males around, obviously, to provide the sperm to fertilise the eggs of the female. But where mainstream have been absolutely brilliant is with their site selection. And what we've got with mainstream aquaculture is a facility now that's going through a very exciting expansion. They're currently churning out about 150 to 200 tonnes of barramundi a year and have designs on being able to churn out somewhere between 1,000 and 1,200 tonnes. That is 1,200 tonnes of barramundi per year. So what we're talking about here is basically orders of magnitude expansion of their facilities at some really really exciting times ahead for mainstream aquaculture it's got to be said a lot of blood sweat and tears um, along the way for an enterprise like mainstream Uh, once upon a time they did have a failure where there was a huge number of fish that were lost extremely unfortunate circumstances behind that 
But it's got to be said that is pretty much part and parcel of any aquaculture enterprise is the uh, what you call a catastrophic failure. Remember, that's farming uh, in general. Uh, you're always going to have a situation where you get a major crop failure. And aquaculture, unfortunately, is no uh, no exception to the rule. Certainly, you can put safeguards in place to try and uh, try and guard against that. And uh, now it's got to be said with the benefit of experience, mainstream is one of these enterprises that is getting better and better all the time. But as I was saying before, site selection with mainstream, basically what they're doing is they're pulling water out of a geothermal bore, uh, getting water out of the ground, and as it turns out, the water that's entering the tanks from the bore happens to be at 28 degrees. That geothermal nature of the bore has just so happened to heat the temperature to the perfect level for growing barramundi. The water's interesting in the sense that it tends to be rock hard. And when I say hard, it's got heaps of calcium and magnesium and all these goodies in it. It's almost a bit more like seawater in that way. It is very much freshwater aquaculture. I think they've only got a salinity level of about, oh, I think it's around 2.4, if that. Um, so it's down certainly towards the, the fresh end of the scale, remembering that zero is, is drinking quality water. If you're looking at um, seawater, it's uh, 35 parts per thousand. So they sit definitely right down the fresh end, but the water bubbles through limestone and it tends to be very, very hard. Uh, it's got heaps of the calciums in it, which certainly keep the, uh, keep the fish nice and happy. If the water's too soft, you can have some physiological uh, problems that occur and real impacts on fish health that are, that are detrimental to the animals. Now, some of our listeners might remember the situation recently, uh, just before it closed down, in fact, uh, about a year beforehand, Hazelwood Power Station had a whole bunch of barramundi introduced to the waters next to the power station, which are traditionally very, very warm because the way the power station works, it uses the water as uh, basically a cooling system. And when it discharges the water, it's necessarily very, very warm. And it is absolutely super for barramundi. And there's been a whole bunch of ornamental fish tilapia and all these things that have been introduced to the water by uh, people uh, got to be said illegally um, mainstream actually supplied the barramundi on this occasion and of course that was done through with uh, all the requisite uh, ticks of the boxes for uh, for, for government approval but the uh, the exotic ornamentals like the tilapia and these things that were introduced to hazelwood that was uh, that was done on the sly so now I think there might be efforts underway to relocate some of those fish or there's an emphasis on catching them um, of course, with the recently announced closure of the Hazelwood plant, uh, that creates problems for those barramundi who are no longer going to be able to benefit the, uh, from the warm water that was produced. Because of the phases of the shutdown, my understanding was some of the fish started moving towards areas that were going to be uh, naturally warmer. They were quite good at seeking out those thermal profiles and working out where they needed to go to survive a bit longer. As I mentioned before, Melbourne, um, sorry, mainstream aquaculture is not Melbourne Aquarium. They don't have huge numbers of people touring the facility all the time. Our students are among the lucky few that do are the Melbourne Polytechnic aquaculture students that are completing a Bachelor of Agriculture and Technology program, studying subjects like applied finfish aquaculture, the biology of fish, these sorts of things so as it's in context, and they go and tour the facility and have a look and see all the ins and outs of the facility. What we've got at Epping Campus is basically a scaled-down version of what you'd see at mainstream aquaculture in a sense, uh, in, in the sense that it's what we call RAS or the RAS, uh, Recirculating Aquaculture System. 
And the idea is that all of the water in a RAS system is constantly, as the name suggests, constantly recirculating. So there's very, very minimal discharge. Uh, in fact, we've worked out that the Aquaculture Training and Applied Research Centre at the Epping campus, which has got to be said, is relatively tiny. It only contains uh, about 20,500 litres of water when it's full, maybe 21,000 or thereabouts. But 97 to 99% of the water is recirculated and there's only a very, very small discharge on a daily basis. And that's partly why recirculating aquaculture systems are certainly seen as a way of the future. Now, the thing to remember, though, is there's big capital outlay associated with a commercial production facility. Our facility at the Epping campus is by no means uh, commercial scale. Uh, if you want commercial scale, you go to Mainstream, which is where we send our students for the, uh, for the industry placement component. We've got a couple of students, as we speak, that are completing their industry placements with Mainstream Aquaculture, which we're very, very grateful of because we depend on that industry engagement to make sure that we're producing graduates that can uh, can go out and compete in the industries and make that immediate impact. So the idea is that our facility at Epping is very much a training centre where we teach students the ins and outs of the aquaculture industry. So for example, you know, shutting a pump down, that'll cause the sump to start overflowing. What do you do next? Put the students under the acid a bit so that they're really put in pressure situations. They can then go to mainstream, work out where all the water's flowing to and from and work out how to function effectively in that industry industry. That's a big component of what we do. The great thing, there's a number of great things about recirculating aquaculture systems and one of those is the fact that they're completely closed off from the surrounding environment. So if you've got creatures like barramundi that uh, enjoy 28 degree temperatures, you can provide that um, if your systems are, are up to it, if they can heat the water or maintain temperatures at a reasonable level for the barramundi. You're not suddenly hostage to what's going on in the surrounding environment like you'll find during Melbourne when we get some, uh, even at the best of times, some unseasonally cold weather can occur in spring or summer and you suddenly start losing temperature. Uh, if they're in ponds outside, they're stuck with whatever gets dished up to them. If they're inside in a recirculation aquaculture system like we've got and like there is at mainstream aquaculture, you can control that very, very tightly. The other element too is biosecurity. If we do get a big disease outbreak in our system, God forbid, and we've got quarantine systems in place to be able to stop that occurring in the first place, but if by some act of God we ended up getting some sort of virus in our system that was causing devastating impacts, we've got the ability to treat every drop of water that leaves the facility, as, uh, as mainstream in fact do. So they can treat all the water and and what's getting discharged is, uh, is not going to endanger species of wild fish uh, in the environment. Of course, the other thing to remember with recirculating aquaculture systems is the fact that there can be a hell of a lot of sustainable development put into the systems themselves. Now, the problem with RAS systems is when you get a, a situation like you're, you know, you're recirculating 97 to 99% of the water, that's great. That means it's relatively very, very water friendly. But the problem is when you try to conserve one resource, you often end up using a hell of a lot of the other. So in the case of recirculating aquaculture, systems we uh, end up using relatively very very little water but there's a lot of power that gets guzzled up and the reason for that is you've got pumps and blowers that are providing water movement and aeration which you absolutely need every tick of the clock to keep the fish alive and of course if they're running 24 7 365 without fail then you've got a situation where your power bill is going to keep ticking over now of course in the state of Victoria where we're and, and Australia in general where we seem to be obsessed with coal-fired power stations 
stations. Uh, there's a lot of room for development there. When we look at things like solar panels and all those sorts of things, wind energy, all these sorts of things that can be applied to systems like that, either retrofitted or built from the ground up so that they incorporate these types of systems. A lot of room for development in these particular areas. And the other big one, of course, is what we call aquaponics. So that's a fusion of aquaculture with hydroponics. So you can actually grow traditionally hydroponic crops using aquaculture wastewater, a very, very interesting element as well. Okay, let's go to a song so it's not just me blabbing on. The Great Barrier Reef has been in the news a lot lately. Uh, unfortunately, it's generally for the wrong reasons with all the bleaching and those sorts of things that are going on there. And here's a song that always makes me think of it. Uh, this is Seven Wonders by Fleetwood Mac.
You're listening to Out of the Blue on 3CR Community Radio, 855 on your AM dial. I once had a chat to a visiting, uh, he's now Emeritus Professor, uh, Thomas Lasordo from North Carolina State University in the USA. And I asked him about aquaponics and what it means in the uh, in the global scheme of things. And he sort of said to me, well, I'm kind of sick of hearing about aquaponics. And I was sort of a bit taken aback by that. And the, the rationale behind what he was saying there was based around the fact that there's a lot of pilot scale stuff being done, quite a bit of research, not a whole hell of a lot of development. But either way, there wasn't the development really being done at the coalface, which is to say commercialisation and commercial scale production systems for aquaponics and I thought that was a really interesting quote uh, just from the point of view that aquaponics and it's got to be said in 2017 it still remains something of a pipe dream now it's quite interesting nowadays there are a few more enterprises starting to come out of the woodwork and it will be an interesting industry to just keep an eye on in coming years it's one of those situations uh, aquaculture and aquaponics where I think well if it doesn't succeed in the future in a big way then essentially something's got to give. Um, We cannot keep uh, applying enormous amounts of fishing pressure to the oceans if we're going to be getting our seafood. So certainly farming is is an excellent way around that. Uh, Farm the stock from artificially produced animals. You know, you're talking about artificial fertilisation methods, uh, spawning of barramundi and it might be silver perch or Murray cod and these sorts of fish that I'll chat about in detail next time. By harvesting stocks that have been reared in in, in an aquaculture environment, of course, what you're not doing is denuding or degrading the populations of wild capture animals like you tend to do, unfortunately, with a whole range of different fishing methods. That's not to say that all fishing is damaging. Remember, we can still sustainably harvest fish, crustaceans and mollusks from the sea. So it can certainly be done, and it's often making sure that it's in as as sustainable and, it's got to be said, profitable way that we possibly can. Now, next time I want to continue on with this topic and talk a little bit more about some of the Australian native finfish that we uh, use for aquaculture in the state of Victoria, things like Murray cod and silver perch, which I want to discuss in a, uh, in a fair bit of detail because some very, very interesting developments occurring there uh, interstate as well in New South Wales with a massive cod farm that's opened up in Goulburn relatively recently anyway that's all we've got time for today on out of the blue i hope you've enjoyed the show please stay tuned for out of the pan with sally